You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. When an early 20th century painter by the name of Juliet Thompson asked Abdu'l-Baha, the eldest son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet and founder of the Baha'i faith, whether art is a worthy vocation, Abdu'l-Baha responded by stating that art is worship. The more thou strivest to perfect it, the closer wilt thou come to God. When an actor mentioned the art of drama and its influence, Abdu'l-Baha expressed that drama is of the utmost importance. It has been a great educational power in the past. It will be so again. Today, on this episode of Cloud9, we're going to be exploring the world of mental health, trauma, and counseling by diving into the great educational power of drama therapy. In our lifetime, every one of us will experience some form of mental illness, either directly or indirectly. I live in Canada, and according to the Canadian Mental Health Association, by age 40, about 50% of the population has experienced a mental health crisis, and only half of that population is known to seek out professional help. In the United States, data compiled by the National Alliance for Mental Illness shows that one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness in any given year, and that was before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. According to the CDC, symptoms of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder increased considerably in the United States from April to June of 2020, compared to the same period the year before. Overall, 40.9% of respondents to the CDC recent survey reported at least one adverse mental or behavioral health condition that had been triggered by the pandemic. In 2020, Americans saw an increase of symptoms such as anxiety disorder, depression, increased substance abuse, trauma, and stressor-related disorders that were triggered by the pandemic. So where does drama therapy fit into all of these statistics, and what can we learn from its great educational power? To guide us through this exploration, we've called on the expertise of Rezal Martinez-Gillies who recently relocated from Los Angeles to Norway. Rezal holds a master's in counseling psychology with a concentration in drama therapy. She has further training in the expressive arts and mindfulness and is passionate about sharing these tools of transformation with her clients. Following an opportunity to share the transformative power of theater with inmates at San Quentin State Prison, Rezal had the honor of supporting teen refugees and underserved families in California. Inspired by the teachings of the Baha'i faith, Rezal uses storytelling, creative word, and the arts as instruments to empower and support her clients on their journey. Rezal, a warm welcome to Cloud9. Thank you so much. I am so honored to be here and um, chatting with you tonight. Awesome. Thank you. Or in my case today, (laughs) this morning. (laughs) Now, on your website, you describe yourself as a Baha'i-inspired therapist. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what this means to you and how would you say your approach to therapy is Baha'i-inspired? Well, something that um, I guess you could say part of my journey as just a human, as a therapist, 
I realized many years ago that I wanted to um, strive towards what Baha'is are calling coherence in their lives. So making sure that every aspect of my life didn't have disparity between my words and my actions. Um, so for example, like some of the principles of the Baha'i faith, um, you know, unity, justice, you know, the evolution of humanity being very important, religion and science being in harmony, all of these different tenets of the Baha'i faith. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just saying these things were important to me, but I was actively living them and showing them. And so for me, I realized that that meant going beyond, um, you know, just saying by day I'm a therapist and by night when I pray I'm a Baha'i, but really truly trying to figure out ways to blend um, all of these uh, tenets into my daily life. So that's how I'm working towards being a Baha'i-inspired therapist and really um, supporting my clients with um, character building and strengthening uh, spiritual qualities. And even people who maybe don't necessarily, um, you know, know about Baha'u'llah or Baha'u'llah's message or even necessarily believe in God, but care about morality and care about virtues um, like truthfulness you know, honesty and sincerity, you know, these different kinds of virtues being very important. You've been working as a mental health professional and drama therapist for almost a decade. I'd love to hear your journey up to this point and what kind of led you on this path. So just to clarify, I've been working as a mental health professional for almost a decade, but only as a drama therapist, maybe for the last six years. You know, to be completely honest, I have struggled with a lot of my own mental health issues and just issues as a human, right? <laughs> um, very early on in my life, I experienced trauma. And um, because of that, I've been in therapy since I was about five years old. And so really, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you study what you know, and you end up doing what you know. And because I've been in some form of therapy from such an early age, I realized um, that therapy is really what I know. Mental health is what I know. And um, working on transformation, personal development is something that I'm very passionate about and something that I'm always working on and have always been working on. Um, so rather than trying to fight against it and saying, oh, I don't want to do this. I, I don't want to be seen this way or that way. Um, I'm actually Latina. And so my family, there's kind of a stigma in Latino culture about mental health. I'm very grateful that my family has been very supportive of me and my journey. Um, but you know, these are still messages that you receive. Um, and so I'm grateful that I was able to, um, you know, push through that and continue that journey and go ahead and go with it and say, this is what I know. I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a mental health professional and specifically a drama therapist because I've experienced personally the transformation with the arts and theater specifically. So I was going towards getting my um, bachelor's in theater with a minor in psychology and it was pretty early on that I noticed, you know, the power of, of drama, as you mentioned, Abdu'l-Bahá says. Um, but I really wanted to find a way, like, how do we tap into this healing power of theater? You know, as, a, as an actor myself, I noticed every role that I was taking, um, you know, whether it be, you know, professional or for fun, I had some kind of healing experience with it. 
Um, and it was through that process and then especially through uh, the Meisner improvisation technique that I noticed that there was some kind of inherent um, like healing capacity with theater. So it was actually my mother who was a former professional actress herself who told me about drama therapy. And um, I started looking into it. And at the time, it was still relatively unknown and only two um, programs available to, you know, become uh, a drama therapist at that time in the United States, three internationally, if you can believe it. And so one in New York and one in San Francisco at the time. And so I, I knew I wanted to go in that direction and, and decided to get my um, bachelor's in theater and continue with my minor in psychology and then set my heart out on going and getting a master's in drama therapy at the California Institute of Integral Studies. So going back a little bit further, could you share a bit about how you were first introduced to the world of theater? My parents were actually uh, professional musicians. And like I said, my mom uh, was a professional actress. She actually met my dad through musical theater. He was the music director when they met. And so I've just kind of been raised in it. And it's, again, what I've known for my entire life. Um, I grew up seeing my parents do this kind of work. I grew up being part of, um, you know, music and uh, theater and singing. Uh, my dad was the uh, choir director at the Metro Denver Baha'i Center in Colorado. And so this has just been like breathing for me my entire life. And so I honestly can't even imagine going in another direction. I tried. I tried studying international studies. I tried a career in television and film. And my heart is still pulled back into, um, you know, specifically theater. I guess I've always kind of stayed in the realm of art. But well, this is I a perfect yeah. kind of uh, marriage of, of the two, of two very diverse fields, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure like me... Many of our listeners have experienced some form of counseling, therapy, or coaching, but perhaps not explored the benefits of drama therapy. You've said each session looks different depending on the need of the client, but could you walk us through what generally happens during a drama therapy session? Yeah, so yeah, it will really depend on you know the needs of the client and each session, but I would say... It depends. Like a lot of a lot of times, I'll use role asking to client asking a client to step into a role, whether it be the anger they're experiencing towards a loved one or frustration they're feeling towards a boss. Um, I'll ask them to step into the role of frustration or the anger, or even step into the role of the boss, or um, maybe step into the role of themselves, but angry at their boss. Um, sometimes I'll take on the role of the anger or the boss and let them have the conversation with me. So it will really depend. A lot of times I'll also use improv. You know, all of this is usually improvised. Um, when I was working with inmates in San Quentin, uh, that was specifically, uh, theater driven. So, uh, we, we would use a play like specifically Shakespeare. I believe we used Macbeth. Um, and so, uh, these men would 
you know, learn their lines and we would practice together. And then the whole point, the culmination was to actually put on the show. And so um, the other men, the other um, inmates would come and, and watch. And it was really powerful to witness. What was so exciting was they would bring in their own spin on on Shakespeare. So maybe they would decide, I'm going to write a rap around these lines or I'm going to write a rap around these feelings. And we would incorporate that. Um, what was really exciting, and I wasn't able to be a part of this, but was very cool. Um, they will then take this, um, uh, what they've learned from doing the Shakespearean aspect of the play, and then turn it into what's called a parallel play, where they will then write their own story based on, um, based on the themes that came up in the theater production. So the themes of Macbeth and uh, then be able to cast their own uh, actors and all sorts of stuff. So it, it's very exciting. That, that was very exciting to watch and, and experience with them. I'm just thinking regarding how drama therapy shows up, you know, and how it looks differently than um, talk therapy. Uh, something that I love about it is that you're often on your feet. Um, so, and there are warmups for this. So you're not expected to just jump in. You can if you want, which is the exciting thing about drama therapy. But um, you're often on your feet and you know playing with scarves or even puppets, um, outfits like uh, costumes. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to uh, make maps, uh, like a map of messages. So that was actually something that I did um, for my thesis project was I, I did a multiracial identity formation using a map of messages in drama therapy. So it's just, there are so many possibilities and, and that's what's so exciting about drama therapy is that the possibilities are endless because it is so creative. So you have a lot of opportunity to explore and diversify and even come up with your own new methods and how does this work for you? So you can really make it your own, which is also so much like theater. When you're when you're getting ready for a play, there's warm-ups that you do. When when someone, a client, is getting ready for a drama therapy session, what are some things that they can uh, practice to prepare themselves to go into a session? I love that. Um. <laughs> I imagine keeping an open mind is is critical because uh, you might be called on as a client to do things that don't feel natural to you. But is there anything else? Yeah. So I I'm so glad that you asked about that because um, we you know a, a drama therapist will never ask a client to do something that they don't want to something that makes them uncomfortable because this is in service to the client. You know, so it, it, the the drama therapist isn't like a director being like, all right, showtime, you know, show me what you got, you know, <laughs> which I think, unfortunately, sometimes drama therapy for someone who's never heard of it, it can feel that way. And so maybe that's why people can shy away from it at first. I mean, honestly, for any kind of therapy, whether it's active or experiential, the way uh, drama therapy is, it's so important to reflect on what are you wanting to work on today? What do you want to talk about? What's something that uh, has been bothering you because un unfortunately I think it's common for people to only go to therapy when they're really in a crisis or you know the the problem is very obvious but the best time to go to therapy is when nothing feels wrong because that's when you're gonna get the time to think hmm what what have I been wanting to work on today like what kind of personal development do I want to experience today 
And so those are the, I guess you could call them warm-ups that you could do before you go to your session. And then it's wonderful for the therapist because then we're like, all right, you're ready to rock. Let's do this. Do you want to work on this today? Great. Uh, let's, how do you want to approach it? Let's, let's see that. And then if they don't have an idea, then the therapist is more than happy to step in and offer their ideas. So yeah, it's great if you, if you come in with something you've already been thinking about. So when I was preparing for this interview, I reflected on the nature of the human soul and when someone is physically or emotionally suffering. I came across this prayer by Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, where he compares the soul to the sun. Even when the sun is hidden behind the clouds, we still see the sun's inherent light. Baha'u'llah says, Know thou that the soul of man is exalted above and is independent of all infirmities of body or mind. That a sick person showeth signs of weakness is due to the hindrance that interpose themselves between his soul and his body. For the soul itself remaineth unaffected by any bodily ailments. So Rezal, how do you relate to these words and how is your understanding of the soul impacted uh, through your work as a therapist? So I love that you're using this quotation by Abdu'l-Baha. I often refer to the same quotation. Um, I am so excited about the concept of the rational soul in the Baha'i teachings. It's something that I'm often reflecting on and bringing into my work, actually. I mean, this is part of what I think of as intuition, honestly. Um, so I often encourage you know, myself and my clients to tap into their intuition, to tap into their, their rational soul, which is waiting, just waiting to support them. So whenever I am struggling or whenever I can't see past a problem or I'm just feeling like there's no hope, I meditate and I pray and I pause and reflect and I tap into my, my rational soul and see what, what my, as I would call it, a higher self, what does my higher self have to say about the situation? What am I missing? What is my mind thinking of, but my heart wants to tell me. And I kind of think of the, of the mind as, and, and the heart together as the rational soul. When we somehow have coherence uh, between the two of those working together, um, I think a lot about, uh, you know, what that looks like. And, and it's really exciting to see uh, the kind of progress I can make with clients and the kind of progress I make with myself when I, when I tap into those powers. Hmm. You mentioned the rational soul, and I want to take this concept one step further. Abdu'l-Baha, the eldest son of Baha'u'llah, said that the soul can discover the realities of things, comprehend their properties, and penetrate the mysteries of existence. All the sciences, branches of learning, arts, inventions, institutions, undertakings, and discoveries have resulted from the comprehension of the rational soul. Abdu'l-Baha goes on to say that the rational soul gradually discovered the reality of things by bringing them from the place of the invisible to the visible. Now, how have you witnessed drama therapy help your clients bring something that is hidden into the realm of the visible? Yeah, something that I think about a lot uh, is the power of drama therapy and how wonderfully concrete it is. 
So what I mean by concrete is um, I think it can be difficult when, you know, traditional psychotherapy, talk therapy, it can feel like it begins and ends in words. And there sometimes seem to be no actionable steps. Um, what I love about drama therapy is that it's all action-based. It's all active. And you're always in, in activating your body, which uh, anyone who knows about trauma, uh, you have to activate your body in order to integrate your mind uh, back to your body. So what can often happen with people who experience trauma is that there's a separation. Um, there's, there can be a split. So something that really excites me about drama therapy is it helps you tap into um, your implicit memory and make it explicit memory. So let me explain a little bit about what that means. Implicit memory is effortless. It's, um, you know, where you're suddenly smelling something and you go, I have, I now remember this thing that happened in childhood, but how did that happen? Um, what drama therapy can do is it helps you take control of that so that you can make these implicit memories, these memories, which are um, like trauma can uh, often make things implicit so that your body remembers, but your mind doesn't. And so you can't make sense of it. Um, so what happens is when you activate the body and you do something like drama therapy, where you engage the body, you are able to bring it back to um, explicit memory and work through it and process it rather than having to just sit and live with it and wonder, why am I like this? Why do I keep repeating these mistakes? Why am I still unhappy? How can I change? Um, so drama therapy offers the ability, the, a way to make it concrete so that you can make the changes that you're wanting and that you're desiring and that are inherent in you, um, but that you just uh, need the extra impetus to help change. So you've also already mentioned intuition, and I want to talk about it a little bit more because I know that much of your work as a therapist is guided by this sort of spiritual perception that you've harnessed. Could you share a bit about your experience as a therapist with harnessing your intuition and its connection to prayer and meditation? Yeah. Um, honestly, I feel like at least I think everyone's experience with intuition is going to be different. I would say with mine, uh, especially when working with a client, um, what happens for me is um, I'll just suddenly get this strong feeling of this needs to be said, this needs to be noticed. And of course, I always check in with my clients and say, hey, I'm, I'm feeling like this could be true for you. Is it? You know, so I follow that. Um, because I think it's also important as a therapist to be aware of uh, what could what's called projection, you know, making sure that I'm not projecting my own stuff or my own uh, feelings onto someone else's. Uh, but most of the time when I follow this feeling and just trust these this uh, this kind of, I call them I call them intuitive hits. When I get an intuitive hit and I check into it, it's usually always accurate. Um, I've been harnessing this in myself, honestly, by engaging my rational soul. So through meditation and prayer, when I um, focus on my rational soul and I uh, set an intention on engaging with my rational soul, um, that helps me get stronger and stronger with my intuition. And it's really a... a a sense of trust of self. Uh, 
Um, and I don't mean self as an ego. Again, I mean self as in the soul, as the true part of who I am. Um, so the difference there is, uh, at least my ego, my ego tends to sound fear-based <laughs> or, um, concerned and my, my higher self or my soul is amazingly relaxed and confident. Um, and so loving when I can tap into that aspect of myself, it feels really different. Um, it feels like I said, very supportive, very loving, um, very relaxed and confident, but um, not confident in an ego sense, just confident as in, hey, mm -hmm. it's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this beautiful Baha'i writing that says the word of God is the storehouse of all good, all power and all wisdom. It awakens within us that brilliant intuition, which makes us independent of all tuition and endows us with an all embracing power of spiritual understanding. You mentioned some of your clients may not prescribe to any kind of faith or, or religion or philosophy, but that idea of, of prayer kind of, you know, creating that st strengthening our intuition, like what, what do you believe is the benefit of, of prayer and meditation in harnessing our intuition? I would say for me, making space for prayer and meditation slows me down. Um, it gets me out of um, my own mind, honestly, you know, my own mind tripping me up. Um, my ego, it gets me out of my ego. It gets me out of my self in the sense of ego. It gives me objectivity in the sense of, I think it goes back to confidence mm -hmm. and also humility. It's kind of, it's weird, right? That sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. It's like, the confidence in knowing that it's okay if I'm wrong, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that it's a blessing to not be right all the time um, or even much at all, <laughs> you know, but it, and to know that it's not about me, it's about connection. It's about relationship. It's about collaboration and supporting another soul because I'm not the only soul here. You know, I'm not the only one with a rational soul. Everyone has a rational soul. Um, or at least even this, this concept of a higher self, you know, if soul feels too heavy for someone, that's fine. Um, it doesn't need to be named as soul. Cause I know a lot of words hold a lot of intensity right now. Um, but just this, and even simpler to make it simpler, just love. Um, so it has to do with connection and love and knowing that love is really at the root of everything. The Baha'i Writings says something about this connection to intuition and, and dreams. Do you have any thoughts on this or experiences with um, this, this link between intuition and dreams? For me personally, like I have had my whole life, I have had such a strong relationship with uh, my dreams. And so I think that is also like how I have interpreted it, you know, based on other writings from the Baha'i faith as well with, with dreams being, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but Baha'u'llah talks about, uh, you know, this concept of 10 years from now, you, you like right now you'll have a dream and then 10 years from now you'll see it happen. I really relate to that quote, um, because that happens to me a lot. Mm. I actually, I found the quotes from the writings of Baha'u'llah in the seven valleys and he says, one of the 
created phenomena is the dream. Behold, how many secrets are deposited therein, how many wisdoms treasured up, how many worlds concealed. Observe how thou art asleep in a dwelling and its doors abode. On a sudden thou findest thyself in a far-off city, which thou enterest without moving thy feet or wearying thy body. Without using thine eyes thou seest, without taxing thine ears thou hearest, without a tongue thou speakest. And perchance, when ten years are gone, thou wilt witness in the outer world the very thing thou hast dreamed tonight. Yes. (laughs) I love that quote, and I often refer back to it um, just, you know, with friends and and family and even just in my own thoughts. But um, it's so funny because, you know, my husband and I recently moved to Bergen, Norway with our daughter uh, from Los Angeles. And for three months, I kept having these dreams where I was living in a mountainous city. And I didn't understand it, but, you know, being that we were stuck in a pandemic um, in our home at the time, and quite honestly, just feeling really low and not sure how things were going to go or work out in the future, these dreams were such a respite. Um, And so I would happily go to sleep and keep having these dreams. And it wasn't like vague dreams. It was like, oh, you know, you're walking over here and now you're seeing this person and you're doing this. It was like very specific stuff and not even repetitive stuff, but like um, repeating like how you just live life. You know, like you're going to go see this person, you're going to see that person. Um, And then when we got here, because by the way, we did not get to see Bergen Norway in person at all before coming here. So we really just took a leap of faith. (laughs) And when we got here, suddenly I realized that my dreams had been manifested. Um, And so I just continue. And honestly, I have lots of um, examples of this happening for me. Um, And I don't think that I'm special. I want to make that really clear. Like, I believe that this happens to a lot of people, probably people who are, if they're listening to this, they're probably like, oh man, me too. You know, which if so, I encourage them to share because this is fun stuff to share. This is, this is our soul, um, traveling the worlds of God, you know? Um, and so like, I don't know. I just, I, I love, uh, this kind of stuff. I I find it so fun. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. No, I, I love it. I love it. I've never talked to anyone in my podcast on Cloud Nine about intuition and dreams. So this is mm. this is a wonderful little anecdotes to include. So we're gonna we're about to close our interview, but I have one more question for you. So in yeah. many communities, mental health is stigmatized and there are negative assumptions about seeking assistance. People may also experience racism or a lack of cultural sensitivity when they seek help. What are some ways that you believe the mental health sector could shift to remove these barriers, to create a space of inclusivity? And how can art therapy help with that? Yeah. Oh, man, I am so glad that you're asking this question um, because it is so vital. You know, being half Latina and half white, you know, and I also need to make it clear, like, even though I'm half Latina, I look white. Like people see me and they think I'm a white woman. Um, so that's part of, you know, my own privilege that I've had to really become accountable for and understand and how I move in the world and what that means and how, um, the way I move in the world impacts, uh, others as well. So something that I think is so important, 
um, you know, is that every therapist out there, and I think more and more therapists are, are really striving for this, but that they remain as uh, curious as possible as unassumptive as, as possible about another person's experience, um, even if that person looks the same as them, because we also have hidden identities, you know, as I, as I have shared being um, a white passing Latina. So I think, yeah, just educating yourself as much as possible, knowing that this work is not a one-stop shop, that it's a process. You know, this is something I, I have to remind myself of as well, just because I have, um, you know, a, a mixed race experience doesn't mean that my work is completed, um, that I know everything or that I'm going to uh, be perfectly attuned with another mixed race person or another Latina, like half, half white, half Latina person. They could have a completely different experience as me. So always uh, remaining curious, being really gentle. I think as well. And also being okay to, to state your truth, you know, and allowing the other person to be accountable for their feeling that it's okay. Like we don't necessarily have to call people out, you know, as, as I know, that's been a very popular term. Um, but at least naming things I think can be really helpful and really important. Um, in my own therapy, there have definitely been times where I've had to say like, Hey, I don't know. I feel like, um, Maybe you're not taking into account like my culture. Um, for example, in my family, it's just really normal for us to talk about visions and dreams and, um, you know, like, oh, I heard a voice or I saw a sign. You know, my mom is super into symbolism, especially in nature. And oh, and like she'll even hear uh, voices, you know. Now, if you say this to uh, like a typical uh, therapist, they could take that as like, okay, maybe. Uh, you have some kind of disorder going on. But if you're taking into account someone's culture, um, that's really important. I remember working with one of my mentors and teachers who I love dearly. He actually works as a therapist and a shaman. That's very important to him to take into account like someone's culture. And so when he works with you know, uh, like he works with the Mexican population and the indigenous population in Mexico. Um, he takes into account their background and where they're coming from. And a lot of times they'll do, um, what exact, oh, I'm trying to remember, not like an exorcism, but um, like these topics come up and for, you know, certain therapists, this could be really uncomfortable. You know, they'd want to write that off as a disorder instead of investigating and being curious. Because I'm thinking of the concept of, of white supremacy, which I know can be kind of a hot topic, but I think it needs to be named, especially when it comes to psychology. Like if we think about who invented psychology, you know, and, and by invented, I'm kind of being cheeky, but I mean, like who started to write these things down? Who had the power at the time? Who... Um, was given a voice, given opportunity. It was white men, you know. So white men were the really the founding fathers of this uh, science. Um, so I'm really grateful that more and more diversity, more diverse voices have started to step in and share their expertise and their knowledge and the power of storytelling, uh, the power of ancestors you know, an ancient wisdom that's already been there, but has kind of been renamed by these, at the time, white prominent figures. So I think more and more as, as uh, 
different opinions come in and, and different experiences come in to psychology, we're going to see it become less stigmatized because there will be less fear of being labeled as being stigmatized or, you know, honestly being thrown away or, um, you know, having the fear of being categorized a certain way or told, uh, well, if you think like this or you act like this, um, something's wrong with you. Could you just take a moment to elaborate on the role of storytelling in dissolving some of these barriers uh, in accessing mental health or the stigma surrounding mental health um, and the role of storytelling in creating a more inclusive space? Again, what I love about theater and drama therapy is storytelling is at the forefront. And, you know, storytelling being so powerful as, you know, all of our ancestors have shown, like, the only reason we know who we are is because someone told a story. And so through storytelling, there is healing. As I share my story, and by the way, I have many stories, you know, there's not just one story, there's not just one narrative, but every single person has multiple stories and, and they all have different truths in them. I'm thinking about Abdu'l-Bahá, how he talks about how there are many truths that all lead to the same place. Storytelling is the same thing. It affords us the same um, truth, you know, that through playing with our stories, through um, putting them into action and being in relationship with our stories, um, it allows for multiple truths. It allows for um, healing through these multiple truths, which I have personally experienced as being very powerful and I've witnessed it being so powerful. So th there's many examples where theater comes into play and you know it can either be on stage or it can be private. Um, there's also uh, something else that drama therapy has is uh, called a self-revelatory process. And so basically what you do for these self-revs, as they're known, <laughs> is, um, you know, taking a, a point in your life that needs healing and really playing with the story and um, either making it a one-person show or having other people step in to these roles and, and interacting with you. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's really powerful stuff. I'm really honored to be a part of it. Razal, thank you so much for joining us on Cloud9. This has been such an enlightening conversation. Yeah, you really offered through your experience uh, and insights this kind of beacon into this very interesting and um, beautiful, beautiful world of reflection um, through, through the arts and through drama. So I thank you so much for guiding this conversation. Thank you so much. I, I've really enjoyed this. This has been really wonderful. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Bahaiteachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles. <laughs>